Well, as the bulletin says, this morning we are in Exodus chapter 7. Actually, we're going to look at uh, two passages, Exodus, partly from Exodus 7 and then a little portion from Exodus chapter 10. We're going to talk about the plagues this morning as the title of the sermon uh, infers. Uh, as you know, we're looking at the life of Moses, uh, particularly in the book of Exodus, and asking what does Moses have to teach us about a life of trust? What does he have to teach us about trusting God and walking with him by faith? And I think the plagues here this morning, believe it or not, have some things to teach us about who God is and what it means to be in relationship with him. If you've been tracking with us, you know that up until this point, God has made some big promises to Moses, declaring that he is going to deliver his people out of slavery, out of captivity, underneath this this burden that they've been carrying for so many years out of Egypt. He's going to move them towards freedom. He's going to move them towards salvation. And we see here the, the, the practical working of that, that's beginning to pick up momentum, uh, leading to this dramatic change that's going to happen uh, for us as we get to the chapters ahead. But now, just to, to maybe prepare our hearts and to, to get us thinking a little bit, maybe about these plagues and in a way that's relevant for us uh, today. You think about these plagues that happened long ago, it's a really weird kind of event. What do these things have to do with with me and my salvation and how I think about God in my life. I'm going to share with you a quote from a man named Eugene Peterson, uh, and it's from one of his books uh, entitled Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And this is uh, what he has to say briefly about uh, the plagues and the the exodus and maybe their relevance for us uh, today. He writes, The drama of the ten plagues freed the Hebrews from this Egyptian way of understanding reality clearing the mind to accept God's revelation of reality, energizing their spirits to live in the world of salvation. The intent was that by the time they left Egypt, they would not only be physically free of evil oppression, but mentally free of the evil imagination that had crushed the life out of them for so long. The ten plagues would cleanse so that Israel could see life in a totally different way. The unreality of Egypt exposed, the untruth of Egypt laid bare, and would set them free to live a different life when they get out of Egypt, free to live the freedom of salvation. Last week we described this maybe as in in this phrase, God was trying to get the Egypt out of them before they left Egypt. In other words, that what the plagues are doing in partial for the Hebrews, for the Israelites, was changing their mindset, was helping them move into a different reality because God was going to bring them into this great salvation, this freedom of salvation, and they need to get their heads around that reality, around that truth. What is true of them now is they're in captivity, is that that slavery, but in moments... God is going to to pull them out of that, and these plagues help them move away from that to a new mentality. Who you are now is is free, free to worship, free to know, free to uh, glorify God and to know him. In a sense, that's what I want to say about the relevance of the plagues for us today. They put on display for us the, the power of God, and they... In dramatic fashion, they show us how we've been, and remind us how we've been released from the slavery, not to, uh, to work, so to speak, like they are, but the slavery from sin that we experience to the freedom of Christ, the freedom of belonging to him, 
and the, and the new reality of what that means for us today as believers. And so, and so my hope as we kind of wade through these plagues and some of the things that, that we'll see is that you'll ask yourself and it'll be encourage you to think about how is that the, the hope of God changing my life? How is the reality of God changing my life? What am I doing with the power of God in my life? Is it business as usual as I go throughout the week and I think about my life? Or am I embracing the promises of God? Are seeing, am I seeing those things as true for me? They're relevant for me. They're not just something inspirational or something nice that you pin up on your refrigerator, but that they, those truths mean something for you. And I'm hoping that, that the power of God that's going to be on display here will, will drive that home. There's nine plagues that we're going to uh, not really look at one-on-one, but nine plagues we're going to talk about as a whole. We're going to save the, the last one uh, for next week. And so to, to kind of do that, I'm going to take a portion, read a portion from chapter 7. I'm going to read a little bit from chapter 10. So would you stand with me as I read from Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll skip ahead uh, to Exodus uh, chapter 10, the last part of that. Exodus 7, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with my mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron just did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and became a snake, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord said. Skipping to Exodus chapter 10, starting in verse 21, Exodus 10, 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that, can, darkness that can be felt. Verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and your children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and your herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get the, there, we will, not let, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hard, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Go out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replies, 
I will never appear before you again. This is God's word and absolutely true. Let's pray together. Father God, we uh, pray that you would help us to see who you are, understand more clearly, and to be taught by you from these passages and from these events, from this uh, incredible drama of the plagues, that you would teach us, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Y'all remember this question. It was a question that, that Pharaoh asked Moses last week. When, Pharaoh, when Moses came to Pharaoh into his courts and into his, before his presence, and Moses said, this is what the Lord of the Israelites wants uh, you to do, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord? I don't know him. I don't worship him. I don't follow his dictates. I don't respond to him. He's not some kind of master over my life. Who is the Lord? In a sense, you could say chapter 7, really onward, stretching into chapter 12, uh, really chapter 15, our, our answer to that question, who is the Lord? Because in those chapters, God is going to reveal himself in a very real, in a difficult, in a powerful way. And so what I want to do with this passage is simply ask, what do the plagues teach us about the Lord? What do they teach us about having the, the reality of God in our lives and understanding more clearly who he is and what difference it makes for me? And there's two points I want us to, to think about and look at. I want to think about God and our hearts. And really, that, that maybe in a more uh, greater way, I want us to think about the second thing is, is God and um, his power. God and his power and God in our hearts. And God and his power is what we're going to think about uh, more so. But first, God in, in our hearts. You think about um, God in our hearts like this. You see it in this passage. And the reason I, I bring this up is because of the, the issue of Pharaoh and how his heart is being hardened. In some passages, it's, it's Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's hardening his heart. In some ways, it's, it's God's hardening his heart. For example, in verse uh, 3 of chapter 7, it says that God will make Pharaoh's heart hard. In other words, Moses, you're going to go to God, excuse me, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you can make this request, but his heart's going to be hard towards you. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound very encouraging. Uh, God, you're telling me I'm going to go to him, but what I say is ultimately just going to fail. It's going to fall on deaf ears. But then you have pictures in the end of uh, Exodus 7, for example, where it says that Pharaoh kept his own heart hard. And so we kind of ask as, as readers of the Bible, which is it? Is God hardening his heart or is Pharaoh hardening his heart? You think about it, sometimes it's, it's God doing it, sometimes Pharaoh's doing it to himself. How do we make sense of that? Well, you think about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, you know, it, it doesn't, if you're the ruler of a, of a, of a superpower like Egypt, and you've got these plagues that are slowly ticking away and doing damage to your country. It, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make logical sense that you would keep that going because of the damage that it's, it's having, the impact that it's having on your country. All the natural resources that you have that are being destroyed and how your country is, is, is weakening, how you're exposing yourself with each plague that goes by uh, to diminishing strength. You're, uh, you're, you're so vulnerable to other powers coming in and, and invading and, and taking over, yet that's what Pharaoh does. He does something that's insane, you might say, or illogical. 
He lets these plagues go on and on and on, and it just doesn't make sense. You would think that he would just say, stop. Okay, I'm going to cut my losses. Y'all, y'all leave so we can rebuild. That's not what he does. Why does God do this? What, where is, how is God interacting with his heart and with his mind here? Because it, it seems like God is holding Pharaoh accountable to something that wasn't his choice, so to speak, because God's the one hardening his heart. And God's holding him accountable for something that he's doing to him. But you think about it, and you think about how the Bible in other places talks about that. It's not like uh, Pharaoh is this good guy, this nice guy, this perfect guy, that God moves into his life and makes him evil. Pharaoh was always a bad guy from the beginning. He was the one that was committing this, this grave injustice against the Israelites enslaving them and, and using them and, and mastering them in this unjust way. He was always a bad guy. It's just that God is, is hardening his heart and Pharaoh is hardening his own heart in response to God in the midst of this. So it's hard to say that, that God is the one doing it solely because Pharaoh is hardening his own heart and he never was a good guy from the beginning. And so the text implies two things, that God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely in control, but at the same time, we are responsible for our actions. We're responsible for how we respond to God and his commandments. And you think about that for a moment, and you see how those things just are hard to to put together. And so I'm not sure I can explain this. I'm not sure there's there's a clear way to explain this and put it in a nice box, how God is absolutely sovereign and fully in control of all things, and yet at the same time, we're responsible for each and every one of our actions. But that's how the Bible talks about it. That's how it's described to us. But nevertheless, I think there's a couple points of application, and then we'll move on to the second one, which is what I really want to talk about. We will never completely understand God's sovereignty. That's the first point. And that seems obvious. We will never completely understand God's sovereignty. And let me put before you that that is a good thing. Because if, if, if we understood everything, would we really have a need for God? If we understood everything, would God be important in our lives? Well, all that we would do is we would put God in a box. He would seem small. He would seem insignificant. He would seem unable to really help me in my situations, whether it's wisdom, whether it's power, whether it's change, whether it's grace or forgiveness. It, it would limit him. We are finite. We, we don't understand completely everything that's out there. Only he does. And that makes him completely sovereign, completely in control. Which is not to say that there are things that we can understand about him. There are things that we can understand about him that we can rest upon, know that those things are true. We can depend upon those things. He reveals himself to us. And that revelation upon the things that he shows to us are things that we can depend upon. They're ultimately things that we bet our life on, that Christ really is true, that really he does forgive us, and that we have the hope of life with him. We're, we're betting our lives, so to speak, on that truth, on that reality, and we can depend upon that. The second thing I think this means for us is that we need to take our hearts before God seriously, that we need to be mindful of what's going on in our hearts. What are we allowing to fester What sin is there that's going unchecked? It could be something small. It could be something great. It could be something more weighty. Are you keeping check over your heart? Is there a coldness there? Are you allowing your heart to grow hard and indifferent to God? 
And if you're looking for an answer to that, you hold any grudges? Is there areas where you're being bitter? Is there a, a, a drifting away from God? Do you desire to, to pray? Do you desire to, 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 to know his word and his promises? Do you desire to, to think about others and to pray for them, to pray with them? What are you doing before God with your heart? The second thing is, is this. We learn so much about God from his power, from his power that we see here, the power of God. God is, is showing us that he is, is bigger and more powerful than anything we could imagine. Commentators will talk about what we see here in these plagues is a war between the God of the Israelites and the deities, the gods, lowercase g, of the Egyptians, the battle that is taking place there. So three ways we see his power in the midst of this. The first is in that section we read in the, the last section, the last part of um, Exodus chapter 7. It's when Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. They go into his courts there in Exodus 7. And Aaron throws down his staff. And it does what? It turns into this serpent. It turns into a snake. And Pharaoh seemingly turns to his sorcerers, his uh, wise men, so to speak, his magicians. And they say, and he asks, can you do the same thing? And they do the same thing. They throw down their staffs and they turn into uh, snakes as well. But did you notice that last phrase there? Aaron's snake or Aaron's staff swallowed up the other snakes. And that's, I think, is important for us to see because it's, it's a snapshot, if you will, of where this story is headed of what is ultimately going to happen to the Egyptians. And I say this for, for this reason. That word swallow, that Hebrew word swallow that's used, is really only used twice in the book of Exodus. It's used here, obviously, in Exodus chapter 7. But then it's used in Exodus chapter 15. And you all know the big story in Exodus chapter 15. That's the, the division of the Red Sea. That's when the, the Israelites uh, pass through that sea and they move in and walk into their freedom. And, of course, the Egyptians, being the Egyptians, that they're pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, and they walk between the waters there, and what happens? It swallows them up. They're swallowed up by that. And so these snakes being swallowed up is an indicator, a snapshot of what is ultimately going to happen to them. But there's something else to observe uh, as well. I said a moment ago, this is a battle between the, the true God of the Israelites and the deities uh, if you will, the gods of Egypt. And I think the text later on in Exodus brings that out. For example, Jethro, who's Moses' father-in-law, in Exodus 18, after the, the drama of the plagues and the Red Sea and all the, and the Egyptians being swallowed up, makes this comment in verse 18, 11. He says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all those gods of the Egyptians. God is, is using this story to, to declare his power, to declare his might. James Boyce tells us that the Egyptians had some 80 major gods and goddesses. 80 major gods and goddesses. And you've had to, to categorize them or divide them up and put them in certain hats. You could form three hats. One would, the, would be the god and goddesses of the Nile, related to the Nile. One would be uh, related to the land. And one would be related to the sun or to the sky. And you break down these plagues, and you see how each one of those plagues, or those plagues deal with each of those three kind of categories. The first two plagues 
where we're directed at the gods and goddesses of the Nile. The Nile turns to blood. That's the first one. There are four plagues directed against the god and goddesses of the land. And then the last four plagues were directed against the sky and everything associated with the sky. And so God is displaying his power even over their deities that they hold to. There's something else uh, from this that we learn about the power of God. Well, it's easy to, to see that God is using the plagues to defeat the Egyptians. We get that. We see that. But why doesn't God do something more supernatural than this to display his power and defeat them? Why doesn't Moses march into Pharaoh's office, so to speak, and just change him into a frog? Why doesn't he change his Pharaoh's staff into pigs? Why doesn't he change people into do something like that to display his power? He easily could. He could do any a number of things to hold forth his power, but he doesn't. He chooses to do these plagues. And observers of this passage will, will observe that these plagues, they're also, or the supernatural way that God reveals himself, they're also natural. They're natural things in a sense. And this is what I mean by natural. For example, the first plague is what? that The Nile is turned to blood. It's unusable. It's, it's, it's worthless to them. And then you have the, the frogs that come out of the Nile and they get into everything. Beds, ovens, houses, homes. There are just frogs everywhere. And then you have these, these gnats and flies after that. You have this epidemic that breaks out and destroys the livestock. You have this epidemic of, of the skin disease that affects the people there. And then you've got this hail and all the damage that it does to uh, their farming. And then lastly, these, these locusts that come as well. God's sending these, these natural kind of uh, disasters, if you will, this, this, the, using these natural things to affect and show forth his power. And at this point, commentators will say, what's, you've got to notice how what's happening with these particular plagues and how God is carrying this out, that it's an undoing of creation. It's an undoing of what we saw happening in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The plagues, are picture, the plagues are a picture of creation out of control, chaos, whereas creation, chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, are a picture of, of chaos being turned into something beautiful, into life flourishing. One commentator puts it like this. He says, the plagues are creation reversals. Animals harm rather than serve humanity. Light ceases and darkness takes over. Waters become a source of death rather than life. The climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of humans on the last day, whereas the climax of the plagues is the destruction of human beings in the last plague. Do you see that picture? God is is showing forth his power by undoing creation, moving it from uh, order to chaos, switching those uh, things, if you will. He's saying there's going to be no more flourishing, but there's going to be chaos. I started things out, bringing things that were chaos and, and dark, and I brought light and life and, and liberty and flourishing. And I'm undoing that, and that's how I'm displaying my power to these people and displaying his power to us as well. Here's a point of application for us to think about. Because God has created things in a certain way, when we live according to those ways, there's flourishing in our lives. God has created things in a certain way, 
And when we follow him, when he's in the center of our lives, there is flourishing. You keep God at the center, and you're going to know how life is to be lived. Fulfillment, rest, security, peace, joy, happiness, the, the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that your life will be free of, of suffering, free of difficulty. But when God's in the center of your life, then your life is flourishing. It's, it's growing, which gets to the importance of what we're doing this morning in a morning like this. To be reoriented towards God, to, to be renewed and to be reminded so God is at the center of our lives. You think about it like this. God gives us rules or he gives us commandments, right? There, there are certain things that we are to, to, to be and to do as believers who profess faith and trust in Christ. And one of those examples, one of those things he commands us is that we are to be forgiving. And this makes sense to us. The logic that the gospel lays out, the Bible lays out is, if God's saying, hey, I forgave you of all your sin, and you know how bad that is, and you know how it, I, was com- I would have been completely in the clear or justified in not forgiving you, but I gave you grace, and I gave you mercy in the form of Christ. And just because as I have forgiven you, you forgive others as well. And that's, that's a principle that we live by as with Christ in our lives, with God in our lives. And that's what it means. Have God in the center of our lives means obeying that. And that's where flourishing lies. But think about where chaos is introduced to our lives when that's not true. When you become a person that's not forgiving and thus not following this commandment, what happens to your relationships? They break down. There's distance. There's discord. There's frustration. There's stress. There's anger. There's bitterness. Because you're not keeping God at the center of your life, because you're not being a forgiving person, you're moving from flourishing, where, where God, walking with God, towards chaos. And so these plagues help us to see when God's in the center of your life, there's flourishing, that there's life. When God is not at the center and you're moving away from him, it's going to be met with chaos. And that chaos can feel like stress, it can feel like anxiety, it can feel like loneliness, it can feel like despair, it can feel like any of a number of things. And God says, keep me at the center and you will find life, you'll find flourishing there. One more thing, last thing, and then we'll close in prayer. One thing, that last thing the plagues teach us is our salvation through judgment, how there is salvation through judgment. And Tim Keller is the one that really shows this and and brings this out, that God brings judgment as a way to bring salvation to his people. And hear me out and and think about it like this. Think about Jesus in the Gospels. Read, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus does all these signs, right? Somebody comes to him who's deaf, and he makes them able to hear again. Somebody who's who's blind, and he, he makes them able to see again. What's he doing? He's reversing uh, the, the, the sin in, his, in our lives. He's taking something that's chaotic and he's making it whole, making it right again. He's reversing the effects of the fall. And the last thing we, scene we have of Jesus in the end of the gospel is, is what? Is darkness. That darkness falls upon him as he's on that cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That darkness falls upon him. Isn't that where Genesis 1 starts? Starts with darkness. And God moves in and he out of that darkness, out of that chaos, he brings life and light. 
the last plague that we referenced here in the end of, of chapter 10 is one of darkness. Utter, deep, deep darkness. And Christ on the cross, in the midst of that darkness, it's, it's like he's reminding us that, that the plagues that should have fallen on you fell on him. The judgment that, that we deserve doesn't fall on us, but it falls on him. And that's why we can say that there is salvation through judgment, that Christ was judged guilty in our place, taking the penalty of our sins and of our shame. And the question for us is, as, as we leave and as we move into a moment of prayer is, what are you doing with the power of God in your life? What are you doing with the power of God in your life? If the gospel is true, and Christ really did die for you, he went through that darkness so that you would never experience darkness. He suffered those plagues so you would never have to suffer that kind of judgment, that kind of chaos. What are you doing with the power of of God in your life? Let's pray together. Father God, we confess that at moments how indifferent we can be, how uh, our hearts can be hard, that we can uh, subscribe to just going through the the mundane of of our lives and not being intentional about who you are. But Father God, we ask in the the midst of looking as as briefly as we had at these plagues and done this overview, that the reality of, of your power would weigh upon us that it would encourage us and that it would strengthen us, that we would move from, from knowing that we're not alone, move from knowing that uh, our life doesn't have to always be this way, but that you can come and, and bring real change and there's real hope to be had, there's real joy to be had, uh, that you can work in our midst. And we pray that you would, would do that as we embrace the reality of all that you are. Do your work among us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.